Welcome to the Beyond Conflict podcast, where we talk about mental resilience in times of crisis. Beyond Conflict is the mental health charity for people in conflict zones. I'm your host, Yang Mei Ui. In this episode of the Beyond Conflict podcast, my guest is Edna Fernandez, co-founder of Beyond Conflict. Edna talks to me about why she moved from the role of writer and journalist to taking action to help people in conflict zones rediscover their mental resilience by co-founding Beyond Conflict. Thank you, Edna Fernandez, for coming on to the Beyond Conflict podcast. Now, you're the co-founder of Beyond Conflict. Can you tell us about Beyond Conflict and what it does? Yes. Hi, Yang Mei. It's, it's very good to be here with you. Um, Beyond Conflict is uh, a new mental health charity for conflict zones. The aim is to raise money to provide mental health support to uh, survivors or victims of war, uh, terrorism or displacement. And while there are lots of charities now that are entering the field of mental health provision in conflict zones, um, I was very surprised to discover there is no single charity dedicated just to this job. So this is one of the reasons we set up two years ago. Now, you started life as a writer and journalist, so um, that's, that's quite a, a different field from uh, a charity f- um, founder and, uh, and, and leader of a charity uh, with mental health um, issues. Uh, you still work as a writer and journalist. So, so what inspired you to start a mental health charity like Beyond Conflict, um, you know, help, helping people in conflict zones? Yeah, well, I'd been a journalist for more than 25 years and written books about religious fundamentalism and religion generally. And I never saw myself as anything else other than a writer. It was something I'd wanted to do from the age of 13. And um, I'd worked as a foreign affairs correspondent, as a a Westminster correspondent, uh, covering general news, war zones. And that was, that was the job I really loved. And then back in 2016, I was working on my third book uh, called The Hollow Kingdom, which was about Islamic State and a deconstruction of their ideology, their funding, how they recruit. And I was at a conference at Windsor Castle um, and I'd been invited by a friend of mine called Edmund Newell, Canon Edmund Newell. Um, who was involved in this conference about the internally displaced people of Iraq. And specifically, the conference was looking at the situation of the Yazidi people in Iraq. And the Yazidis uh, became very well known around the world because they were specifically targeted by Islamic State to kidnap their, their girls, sex traffic them, they were trying to basically wipe out this this tiny faith group of about 800,000 people. So I attended this conference and while it was underway there was a, a very young Yazidi woman and it was at the height of uh, Islamic State's uh, power if you like within Iraq. They were sweeping through, um, they were gaining territory they, they, they were seen as a real threat globally. 
And um, this young woman stood up and she, I think she felt there was too much talking going on. Uh, she was frustrated because she had seen firsthand what was happening to her people. And she kind of got very tearful and angry and said, look, you know, you can sit here and talk, but we need help now. And um, the thing is, those people were trying to help the people at the conference, but I guess there was a real urgency in that these atrocities were being committed while we were speaking. And I was very, very moved um, by what she said. And it wasn't a speech, it was just a gut reaction from her. And I went up to her afterwards uh, and myself and I think Ed was with me. And I said to her, look, what, what, can, what can I do? What can we do? What is the one thing that you need in Iraq right now? And I had no idea what she would say. And then she said one word, psychiatrists. She said, we need more psychiatrists. We need mental health support. And then she, she gave this, she said these words that just have haunted me and motivated me ever since. She said, our people are drowning in their memories. And I remember the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I just thought, my goodness, you know. And what she was saying was that these people were perhaps now in a position of physical safety. They could have escaped Islamic State, got to an IDP or refugee camp. So physically they were safe. But they were still caught in a kind of hell inside their head. They couldn't escape the horrors of what they had been through. They couldn't rebuild their lives. They couldn't move forward. And, um, and so she said, basically, we need more psychiatrists on the ground. We need mental health support to help these people recover. And once they have processed the horrors they've seen, then perhaps we can start to see these people rebuild their lives. And in the end, when you talk about rebuilding peace in, in war-shattered nations or nations that are, have been afflicted by terrorism and displacement, it, it's made up of individuals and, and communities and, uh, and then the country. So you have to kind of almost like think, we have to find a way to heal the individual, heal that family, heal that community, and then perhaps the country can start to move forward and rebuild its economy, rebuild its country and so forth. So peace is a very complex thing. And as a journalist, I'd always written about religious fundamentalism in, in all sorts of different religious contexts, not just within Islam. And so I was aware of the pattern that existed across different faiths. And I'd also seen firsthand what could happen when violence and war and terrorism came to a place um, in my reporting days. But um, when I heard this young Yazidi woman speak, for the, I'd always thought that journalism was a, and being a writer was a good enough calling, you know? You, you basically shone the light of truth on what was going on in the world, and then you left it to others to, to address those issues. And when she spoke uh, that day, I felt deeply ashamed. I just thought, this is a, an instance where words are not enough. You know, there's sometimes you come across an issue 
and you think, actually, I could sit here and write 100,000 words and produce another book and it could be very worthy, but what will it actually change? Will it change anything? And here was a woman asking for help now, not down the line. And I remember after that conversation, I, I, I went to Ed, and Ed, Ed you know, Ed's a, a canon in the Church of England. He's the head of Cumberland Lodge, which is a kind of educational charity and a sort of think tank for all kinds of issues, social issues from around the world. And um, he also uh, he also ran the the service in the wake of 9-11 at St Paul's Cathedral all those years ago. So he, he feels very invested in all these issues too. And I said to him, well, what can we do? We can't just sit and do nothing. What should I do something? And Ed just said, yes, you should do something. And that was it. That was the starting point. So I started to reach out um, and talk to people. I sent some emails that weekend to, to people that I knew were doing this kind of work at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. I was asking them what, what was available in Iraq. Um, and I was just trying to find out where the professionals stood in all this. And that was the starting point of the charity. And then it moved on from there. Gosh, so as a writer, you're, you're um, you know, I, I'm a writer, of course, and, and we deal with stories. Um, yeah. And um, I, I, that, that phrase about the stories that, that haunt, haunt you and haunted her and, and they're drowning in memories. And many people um, might say, well, okay, you're a journalist um, and uh, it, it does shine a light on these things and, and there is value in that. Um, uh, and when Ed turned to you and said, well, you can do something, yes, and you should, um, you're, instantly you felt that you needed to do something in a, in a realm of professionalism that you don't have any expertise in, you know, psychiatry and mental health, um, but something caught your, caught your heart, touched you. Um, and you, know, you, you didn't instinctively go, uh, as, I, as I might have done as a writer, well, let me try and, I don't know, find a way for you to tell your story in a book, you know, Vox Pop, or, you know, um, you know to help, help people write about their stories and tell their stories, um, which is, uh, th there is value in that. But you went straight off into, right, she needs, psych uh, she said they need psychiatric um, help. So I'm going to go off and, 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 and find some people who, who can do this. And what was your feeling at the point when he said, well, yes, you should? I, it's a very moral guy. <laughs> and, uh, when someone like that says, well, yes, you should, it, it just felt like, well, yeah, I should. Because he, I think he could see that, that uh, it had affected me. And you know, the thing is, as, as a writer, you'll know, you take great, um, as a journalist, firstly, you're taught to be uh, neutral. Your job is to tell both sides of the story. I, I'm, I, I grew up in the old fashioned way of journalism, trained by the likes of Reuters and wrote for the FT and organizations like that. You, you didn't see journalism as polemic. You saw it as presenting both sides. And we now live in a, it, well, we, we have been in a post-truth post world for a while, maybe with Trump, um, you know, uh, being replaced by uh, Biden, that, that might change now. But I was very much uh, conscious that I had to tread a, a neutral path when presenting stories. Um, but 
I think as you grow as a writer, then you start writing books and obviously your opinion comes into it and it does become more personal, more subjective. Um, but still you think, I, I will tell the story and then I will hand it over to the reader and then they take it on from there if they think what I've said is, is worth pursuing. But in this, I'd never ever done anything like take action on the back of a story before but this particular incident made me feel like this is this is an issue this is a time this is a place where we have to take a stand i i did very much feel that what um isis stood for ideology ideologically ideologically was so repulsive to anyone who believed in equality and democracy and you know the kind of uh, tolerance and uh, respect that, that that we we have for one another in society um i've always written a lot about coexistence between people of different faiths and um bringing people together and and i saw that what they stood for was the opposite of all of that and for once it wasn't enough just to say you know, this is wrong, you had to actually be invested. And so in a way, and I found a lot of other people were thinking like that too. They felt a sense of anger and despair about what was going on in the world. But they actually thought, you know what, I, I wanna do something, what do I do? And um, when I started reaching out, I found there were loads of people who wanted to join. Virtually everybody I asked said yes. So I was pushing at an open door. The first step was really to build the organization before I even registered it as a charity. The first step was to build a team. So, I mean, I was very fortunate. Um, we had people like Ed, uh, who became our chairman, Martin Parsons, who's a historian, who has covered the impact of uh, trauma on children in particular in war, in war scenarios, particularly in the First and Second World Wars. He uh, came on board as well and became co-founder with me. Um, so I remember seeing Martin speak and asking him if he would join and he said, yes, this is something I believe in. And then we brought on board people like the head of international development at PwC, he was our financial trustee and he's done a huge amount of international development work around the world. Uh, Gillian Dare, who is a, a former um, ambassador who has set up projects across the Middle East and Africa. She came on board um, and we've, we've got a, a fantastic board now made up of people from different uh, backgrounds, from different professions. Um, from different religions and different cultures. And, um, and then we, we linked up with some top flight psychiatrists from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And these are guys who have traveled around the world for decades, dealing with trauma counseling and training people in situ in post-conflict zones. And they said, yes, they would work with us. And then of course, we brought on board ambassadors to, spread our cause. People like Terry Waite, who you've already interviewed, Sheikh Ramsey, who is a, an imam and uh, who does a lot of work building across the faiths and bringing people together. Um, we've got a uh, war artist, Arabella Dorman, 
who has uh, traveled around the world covering some of these issues as an artist. Um, we've got Adrian Snell, who is a composer, who's done a lot of work with refugees in the past, offering music therapy in, um, you know, places within the wider European context. And, uh, and also a filmmaker, a documentary maker, um, called Richard Wolf, who has covered virtually every conflict zone of the last 35 years. All of them said, this is absolutely necessary. All of us have worked for free now for a few years. And we set up the charity at the beginning of 2018. And every penny we raise goes to the work. It, it, there, there are no admin costs. Um, our lawyer has worked for free. Our, the, the, our treasurer who does our accounts has worked for free. Even the website team, they initially kind of worked for free and we have only paid them a nominal sum. So I think all these different people felt they believed in what we were doing and it would make a difference. But it, it, it's one of those things, Yang Mei, that just takes a long time to get rolling because it's complex. And um, just sticking with the team at the moment, for, for, for now, um, it's, it's, it's a very diverse team in terms of, it was important for you that it was interfaith um, and that there was a very broad range of different uh, experts, different um, spiritual, spiritualities, uh, and different um, uh, talents uh, from law to treasury to culture and arts and so on. Um, why was that important for you to make sure that it was in, uh, specifically interfaith? Well, I think we, the, the aim right from the beginning was we're not going to go out there and say we'll only hate, help Christians or only help Muslims or, or we'll stick to particular parts of the world and particular faiths. From the beginning, we said, once we've set up, we would like to deliver help wherever there is need, regardless of faith, you know, um, because I think there's lots of charities that are connected to a particular face and they do excellent work. Um, but I think we wanted to be neutral in, 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 in that respect. And we wanted to be able to say, we will go wherever the work takes us. And we have no agenda beyond delivering this help. And I think that's really important when you're building trust at the outset that you, because it's, it's amazing. So many times, even as a journalist I've, and an author, I've, I've covered projects and the people on the ground can sometimes be suspicious. Why, why is this charity coming in and offering to build a school or to set up a clinic or whatever? Is it because they want to convert? people to a particular faith. So I was already conscious of, of that narrative. And of course, interestingly, all of us um, had come from a similar mindset, this idea that you help people regardless of where they were from and what their faith was. And, um, and I think we wanted to protect that and keep that as part of one of our central tenets of, of, of the charity. Um, so that, that was the reason really. Um, and, and in terms of, you know, this organisation, it's founded by um, UK based, um, uh, your UK based and, and your border generally UK based. Um, and just picking up on what you said about local um, people, you know, being suspicious of, um, you know, charities sweeping in. Uh, and, and so how... 
how does the model work? Because you're talking about the Royal College of Psychiatrists and they're London-based. How does that work in terms of helping the people on the ground, um, you know, with, with this UK team? We, we've done it on a project-by-project project basis. So what we've done is we built the team, we raised the money. Our first project we intended to be in Iraq. And indeed, we were meant to send a team of um, psychiatrists into Iraq, uh, into the city of Najab in southern Iraq on the 22nd of December last year. And how it would have worked is we, 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 we work with a team of psychiatrists from the UK who are experts in trauma counselling. And we take them out to the conflict zone or the post-conflict zone to deliver training. We work with a partner on the ground or an organization that is well established in the region because we don't know Iraq. And in the case of Iraq, uh, Beyond Conflict teamed up with a very well-known, very well-respected Middle Eastern uh, Iraqi uh, origin charity called the Al-Khoi Foundation. They also they're also registered here. And they've been doing work for, for many, many years. And I met with uh, the head of the Al-Khoi Foundation, Yusuf Al-Khoi. Um, it was meant to be a coffee where we, I just tried, I wanted to invite him to a dinner fundraising dinner and um Yusuf is a I'd been I'd heard about Yusuf's reputation he was a tough nut to crack um he it ended up in becoming a three-hour lunch where him and his team just interrogated me about what we wanted to do and I think they just wanted to see if we were genuine and you know what were we seeking to accomplish and it turned out that he felt this would be very valuable and so we designed a model um, over most of last year, uh, a project that would start in Najaf, where we would fly, Beyond Conflict would fly over a team of psychiatrists. Those psychiatrists would then train uh, frontline workers from four or five of the biggest charities in Iraq, helping widows and orphans, training those workers how to deal with mental health problems among their clients. And um, that project was funded and ready to go, and we were due to fly out the team, and then Yusuf's team would take over the work on the ground. And that was due to start on the 22nd of December. And unfortunately, there was violent unrest in Iraq, so we had to postpone for the safety of the team. It was then meant to be January, and of course then uh, in, on January the 3rd this year, Donald Trump uh, killed the Iranian general in Iraq. So that meant the whole area became very dangerous again. And then COVID happened. And of course, you know, conflict and, and, and you know, the aftershocks of conflict are occupational hazards in the work that we do. But something like COVID, nobody saw that coming. And that meant we had to adapt because we could not go into Iraq. Um, we had done all the base work, but we could not go into Iraq. And I remember talking to our, our chief mental health advisor, a, a, a British Iraqi psychiatrist called uh, Professor Mohammed Al-Uzri. I rang him up and I said, when are we going to be able to go in? When's this pandemic going to be over? And this was back in, when was it, March? And he said to me, we're not going in any time before the summer of 2021. And I was gutted. I just thought all this work just down the drain. 
we've got to wait another year. And I was really upset because I had been desperate to get this work underway, Yang Mei. And then Beyond Conflict began exploring other options. And we decided that a project we'd had in mind as a second project, which was to help the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh, um, we would now see if we could do that remotely in a COVID safe environment. So I made a few phone calls to my contacts within the uh, camp, which is called Cox's Bazaar. Um, and it's the world's biggest refugee camp. It's 1.2 million people. Imagine that camp was in lockdown. And what I was hearing was that these people, the Rohingyas, they had already lost, they had been driven out of Myanmar, uh, religiously cleansed. Many of them had lost loved ones. They had lost their livelihoods. They had lost their homes and seen them burn to the ground. They had lost their country. They had lost their, their identity almost. And they were pushed into this refugee camp. And now on top of all of that, they had COVID to deal with, the mental anxiety of what would happen under this lockdown. So we, what I was hearing from inside the camp was that there was a desperate need for mental health support, not only for the refugees, but also for the, um, the frontline workers, the aid workers. They were facing tremendous pressure every single day and with no backup. So I worked with a team uh, called GDC, Global Development Consortium, made up of a fantastic British Bangladeshi psychiatrist called Dr. Salim Ahmed, and, um, and also uh, a guy called uh, Golam Abbas, who is the former country director for UNHCR in Bangladesh. He's now retired. Together they form this consortium, this, this NGO, and they agreed to partner with us. So we have started a pilot whereby we are training the staff from seven NGOs who work within that refugee camp um, on how to deal with their own mental trauma, but also how to spot it in the refugees they deal with every day. And the plan is that we equip them so that they can cope and they can see it in other people. The second strand is to set up a mental health hotline, telephone hotline, which will be manned by psychiatrists. And the third element is to set up a referral pathway. So if our uh, NGO workers find uh, a person in the camp who clearly needs psychiatric support, we can then create a pathway whereby that person can end up accessing professional psych psych psychiatric help within the camp that's available. It could be available through organizations like the UN, but there are lots of other uh, players within the camp. But you can imagine this, this camp is vast. It's 1.2 million people. So people don't know how to get that help. So these are the three elements and everything we're doing is, is online. So like the training sessions, the, the mental health support sessions with the aid workers. It's seven different NGOs and they're trained by Dr. Salah Mohammed and it's all happening online. It's all COVID safe. They've all got PPE. Um, no one is at risk. And we have put in all the safeguards that are expected of us. And we hope if, that's, if, if that pilot works, 
and it ends in January. We will assess it. We will do a full impact study. If that works, then we will roll it out across the camp. And we may even take that model to other countries because we don't know how long this pandemic will last. So we've had to adapt as, you know, adapt to the situation on the ground, to COVID, to the pandemic, to the fresh demands that are being placed on charities around the world. Um, and I think, I think, you know, it's been a massive learning curve, especially for, a, you know, a humble journalist like me. But I think the only way we can do this is working with the best. So, for example, when we went into Bangladesh, we thought, right, we have got a former guy who used to run UNHCR uh, refugee program. He's to put in place um, the structures that would help those refugees. So he's got a massive amount of experience and he's a very moral and good person. And we have got this fantastic psychiatrist who has already been working in Bangladesh, helping the Rohingyas for three years, training thousands of people. So these are people that have got track records. So we, as a new charity, we've been really conscious that we have to get the right partners with the right motivations who share our ethos and, um, and you know, deliver the work on the ground in a safe way in a pandemic. So that is really uh, quite inspiring because you're working with the best psychiatrists in the UK to share their expertise, to pass that on to um, aid workers to help themselves, but also to help the people that they're helping and to work with the best in the local areas uh, on the ground. And also what I'm not I've noticed is that your model for um, the Rohingyas is slightly different from the model that you set up uh, for, for, for Iraq. And how important is that to adapt to different cultures where you're working, um, different languages, different customs, different, um, or each, each country <laughs> has, has a different mindset, a different value system and all that. How do you, how do you work with, with, within those parameters? I, I think the key thing is you work with a team who are locals, who, who know that country inside out, and you are led by their expertise. If they turn, like the, Iraq, the Iraqis, I, I did ask, can we do a remote project in Iraq because of the pandemic? And I was told, no, that won't work for various reasons. And I was bitterly disappointed. But when I went to people in Bangladesh, they said they could make it work. And so I think one, you have to work with people who know that country inside out. They have a spotless reputation because if you team up with the wrong people, then obviously your own reputation as a charity is, is damaged. Um, and you have to be very, very mindful of what the, 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 the cultural and religious um, constraints are. So, you know, the, the, for example, in a lot of these countries, there is a huge stigma talking about trauma that may arise from sort of sex, sex crimes in war situations. How do you deal with that? How do, if someone wants the help, but they are afraid, um, how do you get over that? You, you perhaps have to provide female um, psychiatrists and translators. You have to be mindful of the, the cultural uh, landscape and uh, protecting that person and making them feel that they are safe to discuss these things. And what, one thing that we did think in Iraq was that people 
for example, there are a lot of children who may have issues. Children won't come in on their own. So we talked about doing family sessions, bringing a mother and her children, and they would be able to discuss their problems in a family context because these are the building blocks of society. So that, that would work particularly well in those cultures where, you know, you need to heal the whole family and help them recover from what's happened to them. It's not just a question of one person, it's the whole family. And that was one thing that, that our psychiatrists that we had been collaborating with, they made that very clear. So I think we've been very lucky because we've been working with some of the best people at the Royal College. Um, it's not a kind of an official link with the Royal College, but we've been working with some of their most senior people and they, they have been doing this work for more than 10 years. And so we know this works, you know. And, and I think there's, I hear, what I hear throughout is, is this humbleness um, uh, that is in the ethic and ethos of beyond conflict that, um, yes, there are, you know, you're tapping into, you know, the, the best psychiatrists in, the, in, in, in terms of the training from the Royal College, and you've got a top notch team, um, all experts in your field, but there's a humbleness in approaching um, the work itself that you're, you know, you said you were bitterly disappointed you couldn't do online work in Iraq, but you didn't, it wasn't a kind of right we still have to force it on them uh, because we know what's right but actually you're listening to them and yeah. yes you're disappointed because actually what you want is to deliver in the best way that you can but you can't do that but let's adapt and let's look at how do you work with the children you bring in the family and so by adapting your um you're actually, you're, the, the main thing is you're, it, it's a service ethic. You are serving these people and you're doing your best to work in the best way that helps them. And you're listening to what it is that they need um, from the people on, on the ground and uh, adapting yeah. to the cultural um, uh, uh, landscape. Uh, and, uh, and so you're, it's, it's, you're actually therefore collaborating with all these different people in different countries and um, different local experts to, to provide a service which hopefully will be the most effective rather yeah. than, um, hey, we're going to just do this and we, we only have one model yeah. for it, one model. I think we, have to be, we have to be humble, Yang Bei, because we, we feel like we're learning with every step and and there's no point approaching the best experts in the field and they're not paying attention to what they say. I mean, having said that, I can be a nagger, you know, and my, my husband will probably corroborate this, but um, I remember in the case of when I was ringing up the people in Bangladesh and I was, I, I was very determined that we would end this year despite the pandemic and all the horrible things it's thrown, that we would end this year doing something, helping somebody at least. And I think that was something that the whole board shared. And I called up, I was having a WhatsApp. It was, all these talks were carried out over WhatsApp, and, you know, Skype and WhatsApp. It, it makes me laugh the amount of work that was done on WhatsApp, uh, which I always thought of as a silly medium for my son, you know, to exchange jokes with his friends. But it's actually really good. And um, I called up, uh, Gola Mabas, uh, you know, this, this former UNHCR head, um, and uh, I called him up in, in Dhaka and I was saying to him, look, you know, um, I, we can't proceed in Iraq because of the pandemic. I want to do something now in, in, in let, let's bring forward the Rohingya project. Can we do it remotely? You know, let's do it as a pilot. Let's treat it as a pilot and see what we can learn in that pilot 
and then roll it out. I said to him, I, I'd read a wonderful quote in the Quran which said, to save one life is to save the world. And of course, you know, that, that, that is a quote, quote close to the heart of, of so, so many Muslims and, and, and also resonates with everybody, with, with all humanity. And, um, and then he said, okay then, all right, I'll do it. I'll, talk, I'll see what I can do. And he's such a good guy because he went in the middle of a pandemic. He made all the calls in the most difficult scenario with the entire camp under lockdown. Him and Dr. Saleh Mohammed, they, they pulled it together. So we worked together and they, they made it happen. And uh, I tell you, it was the best day when it started on the 15th of October, 2020. And I, I, I just said to my colleagues, it, it, you know, at least one good thing has come out this year because it, 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 there, there, were no, there was no big celebration, Yang Mei. We didn't crack open a bottle of fizz or anything like that. I think we all felt so relieved that it had happened. And, you know, the COVID thing, that has been tough because we've all had our own private, you know, worries and issues, you know, people we know getting it. Some of us have lost people. Some of us have, you know, been through real life-changing events over the last few months. And I've seen it uh, in my own personal family and friends. And I've also seen it within the Beyond Conflict family. We do consider ourselves to be a family. And we, it has been amazing how the wider team, and in, in that I include our ambassadors and our, you know, our partners in the field, um, our advisors, how everyone has managed to give so much of themselves despite really tough circumstances this year. You know, um, yeah, and I think you know, mental health issues um, can have a stigma attached to them, as as you mentioned, for um, you know, for people, particularly uh, women who've experienced um, being the victims of sex sex crimes and uh, and and um, that kind of trauma. But actually, um, in in a different way, many of us um, uh, have our own psychological issues um, of varying degrees, um, and it is. In, this, in, in many societies, it, it feels shameful to talk about um, uh, the psychological issues that we're, that we're struggling with, and it becomes a hidden crisis, um, you know, across the board, um, not just for people trying to rebuild their lives um, in conflict zones, but but in general, and I think, um, in particular this year, um, that has come to the fore quite a lot for, for, for many of us uh, because of the social isolation, not being able to see loved ones, um, and having our daily lives disrupted. Um, so you, you touched on it, but could you say a little bit more, you know, why is it personally important to you to help to build mental resilience in, in, in such situations? Well, I think, I think if you if you look at I mean on a, a macro level, the World Health Organization um, has really said a lot in in the past decade about mental health, um, and for a long time, discussing this was taboo. Um, but I think today the world is opening up about it. Um, that there are these statistics from WHO, which says one in four people right now in the world suffer some kind of mental health or neurological problem, 
450 million people in the world suffer a serious mental health issue, making it one of the most serious health problems we face. But astonishingly, two thirds of those people never seek help because of discrimination, stigma, shame, lack of understanding, or simply lack of access to help. Um, and then you've got all those people living in post-conflict zones who are suffering from trauma, PTSD, acute anxiety. And on a personal level, I think it's a bit like a spectrum. All of us have been on that spectrum of anxiety and depression at the most extreme at some point in our lives. It may have been triggered by the loss of a job. It may have been triggered by the loss of a loved one, the breakdown of a relationship. Um, losing your home, somehow finding your identity under threat. There are a myriad of reasons. Um, I myself have had periods in my life where I, I think looking back, I was clearly depressed. You know, I, I wasn't, it wasn't diagnosed. I wasn't on medication or anything like that, but something had happened in my life which triggered a real um, sort of, you know, like a real melancholy. Um, and and you can, I think you can see it most clearly when you're out of it and you look back. Um, and I think I would have really resisted if anyone had said, well, would you like to go to a doctor or talk about it? Um, I remember after I had my son, I went to see the health visitor and they, they were all very hot on the subject of, you know, um, postnatal depression. And there were two classes. There was baby blues and postnatal depression. And they, I turned up and <laughs> they kept saying to me, uh, well, do you, do you think you've got postnatal depression? It's like a box they want to tick. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I, I think I'm just really, you know, baby blues, I'm really tired. And they were like, and then in the end, I just said, I just need a good night's sleep. But actually, I think, I think a lot of people resist people saying, are you okay? How are you looking after yourself and opening up a discussion? And I think that's what you need. You need um, to talk, you need the barriers to come down. You need to feel that you can reach out and that there is help there if you want to take it. And I just think we are just about getting there in a country like Britain. Um, how much harder is it for people on the other side of the world who've lost literally everything? I mean, I know it's hard talking about asking for money right now when there are so many demands on money and people are really suffering in our own country. But then you think some of these people that we are looking to help through our projects, they, they, they may not even have a country. They may not, they are in no man's land. They don't know where they're going. And there is, there, there, there is no safe ground under their feet. So I think this is why it's really, really important to uh, try and help in those parts of the world where there is no help. Because there is help now in, in the West and in a lot of places in the West. People are beginning to talk about it. Money and funding is going towards mental health. Our focus is beyond conflict is to help those people in, in post-conflict scenarios, post-war scenarios, uh, refugees who literally have no safe ground under their feet.
and nowhere to turn. So uh, that, that's the point of what we're trying to do. So in 2020, um, the uh, Rohingya project has started, the pilot has started. So that's a, a wonderful achievement just as we're coming towards the, to, to the, the close of the year. Um, what lies ahead uh, for 2021? Well, I'm hoping 2021 will be a good one. Um, we hope to roll out the Bangladesh project um, to more widely in the camp. And, and once we have learned the, the lessons of the pilot, uh, we also hope in the summer of next year to start our project on the ground in Iraq if the country is opened up again and it's safe to go. Um, we're planning an online fundraiser, hopefully in the spring, uh, with music and hopefully dance and interviews from the field, people talking about these issues. We would like some celebrity support. Um, if there are any people out there who are very interested in um, the issues of, uh, you know, helping people in war zones or refugees to, as, as well as mental health, then, then we would be very interested in hearing from you on what we can do for this fundraiser. Um, and I just, uh, I just think, I'm, I, I'm hopeful, despite, despite how hard this year has been, because I've seen how people pull together and Actually, it's often been individuals, not governments, who have led the way. You know, I was talking to a group of six formers last week, and uh, there were 180 of them, and you know, they've been through a really tough time. And um, and at the end of my my speech was about COVID and charities and how we're getting through it. And then I I sort of had a bit at the end where I, I just said that you were probably sitting there thinking what's what's this got to do with me? And actually, I, I as I reflected on it, I thought you look COVID has given us space to examine the bigger issues, and a lot of young people have taken the lead. Uh, you think of Mar Marcus Rashford on food poverty and children, twenty two years old. You think of all the climate change activists, not just Greta Thunberg, but so many of them, some of them as young as 12, 13, who are making their voice heard and saying, actually, you know what, this pandemic is related to the way we are living and damaging the environment. And, um, you know, the whole thing about racial equality and Black Lives Matter, a lot of young people have been demanding change and saying, you know what, our generation want to do things differently. And so, that has made me hopeful, Yang Mei, because, you know, ordinary young people are taking the lead and showing us the way. And I think on issues like mental health, that is equally the case too. Brilliant um, and very inspiring. And so what would you say to our listeners who want to find out more and who'd like to help Beyond Conflict? I, I think just uh, get in touch, email us, uh, you know, come up with ideas. If you want to raise money by baking cakes or doing a, a kind of, uh, you know, a fun run or running around your garden or whatever it is. Um, whatever, whatever ideas you've got, uh, we'd like to hear from you. Um, and even if you just have some feedback or if you'd like to talk about parts of the world where you think, you know, our work may make a difference. I think we're a very small charity, but we're very ambitious. And um, we hope one day we can take the model to many countries where there is need, help get things started, and then pull out once things are bedded in and go somewhere else. 
we, we, we are not looking to build an empire of offices around the world. We, we see ourselves as rapid response unit of the charity kingdom because um, we, we haven't got a huge amount of money. So we're very tight-fisted about how we spend it and we're very careful to make sure we get results. Um, and I think ideas are as important as money. So I'd love for people to volunteer and get involved and say they'll take ownership of something, you know, to raise money. Because right now, uh, all of us in, in the charitable sector, we've had our fundraising decimated by this pandemic. Absolutely decimated. You know, in the last couple of years, despite being a tiny charity, we held so many different events. First step, I suggest you go to our website, www.beyond-conflict.co.uk. Make sure you don't go to the Canadian Beyond Conflict. We are based in the UK. And uh, we've got a very inspiring picture on the front of a young boy jumping over a puddle joyously. We wanted a joyous picture on our homepage to illustrate hope. And I think it really does. And it's a picture that was taken by a friend of mine and former colleague, uh, He's of a, a photographer. He was a photographer for Associated Newspapers. Um, and um, go to our website and please email on the contact page um, and send me your ideas and get in touch. Or uh, maybe click on the donate button and give us some money. Uh, however small, however large. If you, if you want to be very, very generous, that would be wonderful. Um, if, you want, if you are a corporate, and you are listening to this, we are now gonna start looking for corporate sponsors because we have begun the work. There are lots and lots of companies that operate in the region of South Asia or Iraq and are making a lot of money there. And perhaps this is a way of giving back. So there are also a lot of uh, tech companies. We are a mental health charity that is using tech to help people recover from their trauma. So we would like to hear from you too. So get in touch and um, donate and volunteer. Thank you, Edna. Thank you. Passionate, inspiring, wonderful. Thank you, Edna Fernandez. Thank you, thank you. Our guest was Edna Fernandez, co-founder of Beyond Conflict. For photos and links to some of the things we talked about, as well as music credits, go to our show page at beyond-conflict.co.uk and click through to podcast. Beyond Conflict is the mental health charity for conflict zones. We offer free mental health support to frontline workers and civilians affected by war, terrorism and displacement. To find out more about Beyond Conflict and how you can help, go to beyond-conflict.co.uk. You can also email Edna direct at edna at beyond-conflict.co.uk. For more information on Edna's writing, go to ednafernandez.com. You can connect with us on Twitter and Facebook where we are at Beyond Conflict 1. That's the numeral 1, at Beyond Conflict 1. On Instagram, we are at Beyond Conflict Charity. And you can email us. The podcast email address is podcast at beyond-conflict.co.uk. From me, Yang Mei Ui, thanks for listening and keep well till next time.